welcome to the Act Natural podcast. Today we have uh, Scott Herbst. I hope I pronounced that right. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, I'm your host today, Brian Middleton. And uh, today we're going to be talking about ACT. I'll go ahead and let Scott introduce himself a little bit more. Um, All right. Uh, So Scott Herbst, I've uh, got my PhD in BCBA, got my PhD at the University of Nevada. That's where I started learning ACT. Um, Did a workshop with Steve Hayes, one with Kelly Wilson. He was in town visiting. Um. And, uh, and then since then, I've done a lot of act consistent things and kept developing myself. I was a professor when I graduated. I graduated in 2009. I was a professor at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology for six years. Um, I taught classes on RFT and ACT there. The ACT course I taught was very experiential. That's where I got my real, I would say my first real in-depth experience leading workshops and um, and then in 2015, left the Chicago School to start Six Flex Training Consulting, and uh, been doing that God for almost six years now. And um, and that's been a twisty, turny adventure having my own business. In the last couple of years, where I've really focused in on is training behavior analysts in the world of relational frame theory and acceptance and commitment training applied uh, towards management and supervision and leadership, as well as working with organizations on creating their mission, vision, values, and then aligning their teams around and towards, I should say, that. That is... And is there anything else you want to know about me? Um... Not off the top of my head. I, I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, just so that the folks from the in the audience know, this uh, podcast is actually going to have guests who can ask questions in the, um, the Zoom comments. I forgot to mention that earlier. And um, basically, folks are going to be able to, to chime in and, and, and speak up with those text questions. Um, and also, we're going to go ahead and, and live stream this to the Mindful Behavior uh, Facebook page because I forgot that Jenna Lee asked for that. So I'm going to go ahead and get that launched up real quick. Um, okay, cool. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, well, uh, I guess one of the first questions I'd like to ask is, um, Aside from the fact that you trained at the university where Dr. Hayes was teaching at, um, was there anything else that attracted you towards RFT and ACT? Um, that's a really great question. I, I'm, I'm going to make something up right now. <laughs> um, well, I think uh, one thing, I think when I got to the University of Nevada, relational frame theory, there was just a lot of buzz around it. So that was in 2000 and they were working on the book. And so there was just a lot of activity around the book, like, you know, the Irish, like Dermot Barnes Holmes and Avon's Barnes Holmes would fly in and spend two weeks and, and there would be events around that. And then I was a new student and I'm like, oh my God, like there was just a lot of excitement around it. Right. And, and I think that attracted me to it. I think, too, honestly, just being around, you know, Steve Hayes is a really charismatic, smart, 
guy who made, I think, behaviorism, brought a lot of humanity to behaviorism. And I really appreciated that. And that was interesting to me. And aside from that, in the world of ACT, I just knew that like, I was suffering and I didn't know why, right? And I had, I don't know if it, it didn't, wasn't like reaching clinical levels, but I was dealing with my own internal state, you know, thoughts, feelings, et cetera, that I was not happy to have and didn't want and had tried a million ways to get rid of. And, uh, and then there's this thing called act that says, well, guess what? You're not going to be able to get rid of it. We can teach you to actually just be with it and then take action towards what you're committed to. And that there was a, and I think part of that's, that's part of what attracted me to the science of behavior just behaviorism, behavior analysis generally was like the promise of that, that, oh, here's the science of really what it is to be a human being. And maybe that holds and, and a science that to me actually felt like a science. Because when I was an undergrad, I was actually a lit major, but I'd taken a few psychology courses. And what was funny to me about psychology courses as a lit major was that I was like, well, these people are just doing literature. You know, like, um, like, you know, it's interesting literature, like, the, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is kind of interesting. And this idea of self-actualization is interesting, but he's just making it up. He's not really collecting what I would call data, not like physicists or chemists or whoever is collecting data. And so I didn't really think psychology was a science until I or what I would, what I would consider a science until I discovered behavior analysis. And that's what attracted me there in the first place. And then there was something that was actually, I felt dealing less with the animal model and trying to extend that to people, but actually dealing with the behavior that is uniquely human. And so that's, I think what attracted to me to it. And I just happened to be lucky to land in a place where all of that was in the air. Fantastic. Yeah, I I can agree with you on on that. The the behavior analysis and and the approach of being able to see through data driven approaches is, is wonderful. But I I, I want to circle back a little bit because you mentioned something about Dr. Hayes bringing some humanity uh, to behavior analysis because. Uh, yeah, that, that's something that, that is very challenging. I feel like um, rightfully so behavior analysts have earned a uh, reputation for being a little bit cold and distant. Uh, yeah. And that, that didn't sit right with me. Um, and there was kind of a point at early on where I, I – had to process with that. And thankfully, um, due to a counseling psychologist and friend, um, I was introduced to ACT. And then um, thanks to- How how were you introduced? I'm curious. Well, uh, I was a a special education teacher, a behavior special education teacher. And my, uh, my friend, Dr. Shumway, uh, is a counseling psychologist who was working at the time as a school psychologist. And I was working with the hard kids. And so he came in and he was like, have you looked at this? And he showed me an excerpt from uh, an article that Dr. Hayes had written. And interestingly, 
I had just barely started my uh, ABA program. Uh, I was doing a postmaster's certificate for becoming a behavior analyst. So um, I scanned it and I was like, wow, this is pretty interesting. And then about two months later, the daily BA, uh, Ryan O. O'Donnell, yeah. Yeah, O'Donnell. Uh, he he did a, something with uh, Dr. Hayes and, and announced the... Uh, a act for behavior analysts um, conference uh, or not conference. Um, okay. yeah, yeah. Out of, out of uh, Sparks, Nevada. And at the time I was living in Utah and I convinced my um, school district to pay for the hotel. If I would pay for the going to the conference myself. And that was a continuing credits for being a teacher. And I went as a student sat in, loved everything. And um, a lot of the ideas that ACT covered, I was finding similar ideas kind of cropping up in work, uh, for example, from people like uh, Dr. Jonathan Haidt. Um, I love uh, moral foundations theory. It's a fantastic approach. Um, I know nothing about it. Oh, uh, well, I definitely recommend checking out Dr. Haidt because there's a lot of uh things that are touching on what RFT is, but from a different approach in psychology. Um, sure. I also uh, am a fan of comedians. They're my favorite. Uh, um, I used to do philosophers. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah, there was, uh, there's one particular uh, Kyle Cease a comedian. He wrote for mad TV and mad magazine. And a lot of the ideas that he was talking about hit on, um, what ACT is doing, and I don't even know if he realizes it, but one of them is turning into the discomfort, turning into the pain. Yeah. And so all these things were striking true to me, but I wasn't seeing an evidence base behind them or not enough of an evidence base. And then I get introduced to ACT and I get introduced to it from the perspective of that particular course and I'm going, okay, maybe I'm not a behavior analyst. Maybe I'm a contextual behavioral scientist mm -hmm. who happens to have behavior analysis training. And it's wonderful. Um, I'm, really, I'm really grateful that the research was done and, and that we're moving forward with it. And I love that you're applying it to organizations. Um, that's an area that I definitely think we need to work more on. Um, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. It's well, and I mean, I'll just say why it's interesting to me is because people spend so much of their life at work, you know, and um, and I think one thing I hear a lot in organizations, not so much from leadership, but people in organizations is that what I do doesn't matter that I really have this job that doesn't matter or um, what I do doesn't matter. And that's really, to me, and you'll never hear an organizational leader say that because organizational leaders don't hire people because they don't matter or just to take up space. They hire them because like they want them to contribute to the organization and they can see, they can see that the person at least has the capability to contribute to the organization that there's a um, 
so there's a real disconnect for people in their jobs between what they do and that what they do matters. And one thing I love about ACT is the not just the values nature of it. I mean, that's part of it. But really, in, when you start talking about organizations, it gets into the world of mission and vision and purpose and things like that. And uh, being able to connect people and the work they're doing with that and something something bigger than just their own personal biological concerns is a really, really powerful and I think needed thing. I agree. Yeah. And um, well, without those, without living or being in a place where your values can be honored, I guess you could say, um, I feel like, well, every one of us has probably worked in at least one or lived in at least one place where we didn't feel like our values were being respected and that we were just a, a cog in the machine. And for me, I can, I can think of quite a few places where that's been the case. And every single one of them, it's been definitely escape avoidance as the primary way of wanting to get out sure. uh, of, of being reinforced. I don't have to do this thing. I don't have to be a part of this sort of thing. Uh, a joke I like to say is that uh, staff, if, if the staff meetings are, or are less preferred than a staff infection, then there's probably something wrong. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. But uh so when talking about from an organizational perspective, what are some of the first things that, that you do when um, you're introducing organizations? And, and by all means, feel free to leave anything out because we don't, we don't want to spoil your, your business model, as it were. But what are some, what are some things oh. that, that you would want uh, that you usually focus on first with the business so, organization? Yeah. Uh, and a lot of this is really contingency shaped, but, um, and one thing I've really been working hard on and work on in my courses is integrity and, uh, integrity, not as like, is the business doing what they should do? Are they doing what they ought, but really are integrity as in like, are they keeping their promises and, you know, are they keeping promises to, not just their customers, but their employees, right? Um, and and part of that, part of that work around integrity involves making sure that that there's something to be working for. The analogy I use is like a bicycle wheel. So it's very easy to look at a bicycle wheel and say it has integrity or it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And and the state of integrity for a bicycle wheel has a market effect on the bicycle wheel's ability to perform, right? Now, that's only one piece of it because to even say that the bicycle wheel has integrity, you kind of need to know what it's for and what its purpose is. So a wheel that you could use to win a road race that has a lot of integrity for a road race could have absolutely and probably would have absolutely no integrity for like riding along on the beach. Right. Mm 
Yeah. In fact, it would be trying to take a road race bicycle wheel on a beach cruiser. You'd wreck the wheel and it would be really hard. And then if you were to try to take the same bicycle wheel and use it for uh, trail riding, definitely wouldn't. Exactly. Exactly. So no integrity, right? No integrity. Yeah. Um, Now that's really like what integrity is, is does it work? Now that's integrity in the world of bicycle wheels is the thing whole and complete sound and unimpaired. When you start looking at organizations and human beings that run them, it's not a simple matter of just like, oh, let me patch up the, well, it kind of is. Uh, The parts are different. Let's say that. So you actually have to examine, start examining the parts and well, like, what are the parts of an organization and what are the parts of a human being? Now, I'm jumping back and forth a little bit here, but one of the things to, to really look at dealing with this phenomena of integrity in an organization is what's the organization for? And so does it have a clear mission? Does it have a clear purpose? Is there a vision? Um, I always work with organizations around values, which in organizations is, you know, about how they want to interact with their customers, how they want to interact with each other, what they are and aren't willing to tolerate in terms of ways of being, right? Um, so, so getting all of that in place and then evaluating the integrity of the organization against that and seeing, okay, where are we not? Where is our performance as a team? Um, and performance in an organizational sense could include processes, procedures, etc. practices, where are all those things aligned with the mission, vision, values, where aren't they? And then starting to work with them around wherever there's a lack of integrity, bringing, bringing that into line with that. Okay. Um, a tool I really love for that is the ACT matrix that I think everyone probably listening to this probably knows what it is by now, but if you don't go to, I think it's Kevin Polk, P-O-L-K, like the president.com. And, um, and it's a tool he developed for psychotherapy that just happens to be really scalable to working with teams and actually looking at, oh, what are behaviors we have in the matrix? If you were using it individually, you'd look at, well, what do I really care about? What do I want to move towards? What are some thoughts, feelings, et cetera, that, that are uncomfortable that I don't like that when I honor those or interact with those or try to get rid of those, whatever it is, take me away from my values. What are the actions that, that line up with those thoughts? And then am I willing to just let that stuff be? And if I were only interested in this over here, the stuff that I really care about, that's really important to me, what actions would I take? Uh, So that's the matrix in a nutshell. Organizationally, it works great because you can look at that those icky, unwanted thoughts and feelings Mm -hmm. as conversations. So, well, like are our conversations actually in service of our values 
or are these conversations honoring something else? And when we entertain these conversations we're having as the truth, like I relate to the, this as the truth, what actions does that give me? And do the actions then support what I'm actually committed to? For example, uh, you mentioned meetings before, right? Yep. And oftentimes in organizations, there's conversations like, God, these meetings are a waste of time, right? Well, if you start to examine people's behavior around that conversation, you will see people treating them like oh, they're a waste of time, you know, doing things in meeting, like checking their email, having side conversations, rolling their eyes, et cetera. And then everyone has the experience that it's a waste of time. And then, and then the, the work with the organization becomes, okay, great. So now these are the, some things you'll see when you're honoring these conversations. Now, what are actions you take to interrupt that? Yeah. Um, it's funny you should mention that because um, one of the, the things that I studied with my master's of Edwards administration and a book I came across, not through the class, but because I was exploring into this is a book called the five dysfunctions of a team. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've actually used that in conjunction with act to help address uh, organizational challenges between individuals. And sure. uh, <laughs> it's a really good book. Yeah. It's, um, it's sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just trying to remember what are the five dysfunctions of a team? Uh, so when I'm usually looking slightly distracted during the recording, just so you know, I'm just quickly pulling up resources because I do not have this good of a memory. Um, they are. Uh, oh, wait, wrong one. Absence of trust, fear of conflict, lack of commitment, avoidance of accountability and avoidance of trust. Yes. And yeah, uh, the, obviously the, the opposites of those is um, when we're talking about the, uh, is gaining trust, um, facing conflict, uh, commitment, committed action, um, taking accountability and uh, focus on outcomes. So five dysfunctions, play into the five functions or functional ways of, of doing those things. And I, I see how act kind of falls into that. And that's one of the reasons why I utilize that. Cause there was a, a case where there was an individual in my team that wasn't quite jiving with the rest of the team and, and kind of going off the reservation as it were. Um, and what, what did that look like? <laughs> it looked like a lot of um, conflict and, a lot, a lot of lack of trust. Like um, conflict, like this person started arguments or. I don't want to go into too much detail because it, it might, uh, let me see if I can. Okay. I'm going to, I'm okay, going to try to, I'm gonna, their I, identity, I, I got, I got to change some things. It, it's actually protecting the client's identity more than anything. Okay. Um, but uh so the, the scenario was that there was a procedure that was supposed to be implemented team-wide um, and one member of the team was not following the procedure and it was affecting the rest of the team and other leadership had tried addressing this problem directly with the individual and there was no change that was happening whenever that procedure came up and it was causing um a lot of distress for everyone else 
the individual who was not falling in line with what the procedure was supposed to be was also appearing to be distressed sure. and it was putting everybody in danger. So this was actually a direct physical threat situation. Yeah. Um, so a couple of my peers were talking and I was not direct supervisor at this time. Uh, I was more clinical direction, making sure that we were being consistent with clinical sorts of things. Um, so I, I was hearing my two direct supervisor peers talking this problem over and feeling very frustrated with this individual. And because I was fly on the wall hearing this, I said, may I, may I interject? And they said, please, we'd love your, your thoughts and observations on this. So I said, I think what we're dealing with is a values mismatch. I think and I, and I pulled up the five dysfunctions of the team pyramid, and I talked about how I'm seeing a lack of trust, a, a, a discomfort and avoidance with the conflict, uh, a lack of commitment on this individual's part, uh, uh, sorry, avoidance of accountability, lack of commitment, then uh, fear of conflict, and then finally um, inattention to results. And so I, I, I framed it within that. And then I said, okay, but I think this person's values are this person wants to be a leader. And so leadership is a value. I see this person seeing themselves as a hero. So they're coming in to save the day and, and try to make things better. And I see this person having a value of caring. So I'm seeing three big core values. What I would love to do, if you guys are okay with this, and you're welcome to sit in on the meeting, or if you want, I can just do it one-on-one -on -one with this individual, is I like to pull them in, sit down, and go over this exactly like I went with you. And, and I'll even use this, this write-up that I have right here with it. And let's talk about these problems. And pulled that individual in, sat down, was straightforward, did not try beating around the bush, the vast majority of Australia is the bush. That's a long way to beat around. I'm sorry. I'm just going to get straight to the point. Uh, <laughs> so I uh, sat down, showed that the five dysfunctions talked about values, asked, are these your values? And that person kind of sat back and went, yeah. I'm like, okay, cool. Cause I, I wanted to make sure that I was right on right on the nail here. And if, if there's anything that's off, please let me know. And then I reframed. So I showed this individual how each one of the values that this individual goes towards do fit with the organization, but not with the way that his behavior was going towards the values. So I then reframed again and showed how that individual could follow those values while also being in line with the, what the organization needed and demonstrated that we need to establish some trust here. And part of that trust is we have to test and see if it's actually working. And if there's one person who's not following the procedure, then that throws off the data. So if we can test and you're following that procedure directly as outlined, and then something's not working, then we can observe it because we're observing anytime this happens because of the danger level and we're debriefing afterwards and we want to make sure that everybody's on the same page. Conversation took 10 minutes. Sure. At the end of this 10 minutes, 
we taught, saw a total 180 degree change. That's awesome. Um, this individual was bought in with the team, was participating, um, followed up a couple of times. And the individual reported that he felt more engaged with the organization and wanted to be there more instead of having the desire to leave or feel frustrated. Um, and we also saw behavioral changes um, in quality across the board with every single client that this individual worked with. Sure. So yeah, I'm a big believer in this stuff. Well, can I, can I point to what I'm hearing? Okay. Is that uh, this is, this is really brilliant. Um, So I assert what made the difference is that everyone was listening to this guy in terms of the problem he was, right? And there was probably all this like noise and potentially like personal noise, but probably like communal noise about how this person is, right? Now, all of that's verbal behavior. So it's like this person's stubborn, they're lazy, whatever you would say, right? Uh, They're disruptive, they're not a team player, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and all of that influences how you would look at and then interact with someone, right? And, and then influences, of course, like they're in an environment where everyone's treating them like a problem to solve, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and what you did that was really powerful is actually you came at at it and listen to him in terms of his values and what matters to him. And when you're listening to someone in terms of what matters to them and that they're clear, that's how you're listening to them. And you made it very clear. Like, here's what I see you value. You're right. Um, what then that, that then does is creates partnership. Cause I can say, uh, Brian, like, here's what I see you're committed to. Uh, you want to contribute, make a difference and you want to be a leader. And uh, you actually want to like really value solving this problem and making a difference, whatever it is, right? Yeah. From there, uh, uh, of course, you're going to like listen to what I'm going to say because you, you have the experience like, oh, yeah, this guy gets me. You know what I'm about. We're looking at the same thing, right? Um, and the same thing being the difference I'm out to make, what I care about, what, what I value, and from there, you can problem solve or have a straight conversation with someone about. It. So I can see you're aiming at that. Here's where you're missing. But but the attention is over there. So well done. Thank you. <laughs> I, um, I care about organizational behavior and I see how the organization influences the individual and vice versa. And so that's one of the reasons why I was excited when Jenna Lee let us know that you're going to be joining us. So that's, that's fantastic that I, I apparently I was hitting it right. <laughs> you were. Um, well, I have a question uh, for you to, to kind of drive a little deeper because um, sure. you're, you're doing RFT and ACT. Um, are you familiar with core design principles? And you- uh, yes. Yes, I am. Not fluently familiar. Okay. So I've um, I've read um, I've read Pro Social. 
Okay. Um, uh, examined a few resources and been to a couple workshops, a couple workshops at ACBS dealing with, with those. Yeah. You're, you're, if you're you ask me, like, what are the core design principles? I would be like, Oh crap. Um, I, I have them pulled up. So the, oh, like, awesome. <laughs> if you want, I can, I can read them off, but, um, you are by far more educated in this area than me. Cause I've read one book and attended one workshop. So there you go. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so um, core design principles are something that the ACBS has been researching into just so folks have some context. Um, And I'm going to actually link an article in the mindful behavior live stream of this. Uh, I also, just so you know, um, Scott, I linked the, uh, the contextualscience.org link to the act matrix. So that way folks can see that too. Okay. Um, so uh, first core design principle is clearly defined boundaries. Uh, second is proportional equivalence between benefits and costs. Yeah. Um, collective choice arrangements is three. Monitoring is four. Graduated sanctions is five. Six is fast and fair conflict resolution. Seven is local autonomy. And eight is appropriate relations with other tiers of rulemaking authority. So polycentric governance would be another way of saying that. And I'm just going to go ahead and link that both there and in the Zoom chat so you can pull it up if you want to refer to the article that I was referring to. Um, But yeah, so that's... The reason I bring that up is, is that there's, it seems that the core design principles interrelate with, with the act ideas, because we're talking about boundaries, about values though, um, uh, participation in the process. Um, And it also kind of links into the idea of the five dysfunctions because well, conflict resolution, it's, it's being able not, not turning away from conflict, but facing into it and addressing it. Yes. So anyways, we can, we can stop with that thought. I just wanted to, to, to bring oh, it up. Well, you said like, you, 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 you had, I'm curious if you had a bigger question. Um, well, I guess, how did, how do you think the act approach and core design uh, benefit each other and and what are some readings that you might suggest that folks could look into if they wanted to understand this more in relation to organizational behavior? Sure. Um, so I think, again, not being super familiar with the eight core design principles. Okay. Um, is aligning around a shared purpose one of them? Um. I seem to remember that being all over that book. Yeah, I it's, I made that up. Well, uh, there's appropriate relations between others, uh, other tiers. There's uh, collective choice arrangements um, and clear yeah, I boundaries. Don't even know what that means? Uh, so, collective choice arrange uh, arrangements is the idea of um, we're making decisions together. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the power is distributed evenly. It just just means that we have some common values and we're, and when it comes time to make choices, 
relating to our values that there is some input at some level. Yeah. So a lot of that, a lot of what they talk about, I think is going back to integrity, dealing with integrity. And uh, so things like, um, things like dealing with conflict swiftly and fairly is really an issue of integrity from my perspective, someone who's obsessed with integrity, right? Um, it, it is in the sense that like, it's gotta be fair that if you step out of line, that, that we're going to deal with it. Right. Um, same thing with graduated sanctions in terms of like what's agreed upon, what is not. I think it has a lot of integrity to actually specify what we're going to tolerate and what we're not. Right. Right. Um, and, and in the world of act, I think this all comes back to values and shared purpose. And that's where it all comes from. Like that we as a group have some purpose for our existence, which you could consider like a value, right? Yeah. Now you could specify purpose in terms of just getting something done, but I always like to think about purpose as something bigger than that, right? Yeah. Um, like what is it going to contribute? What is it going to add? What difference is it going to make? And um, and so all of that is really about like, okay, how do we manage this group towards that? Um, and I recalled the question I was going to ask because it kind of flitted out of my mind. And so I, I think that your commentary helped bring it full circle for me. Um, so one of the things that came to mind with respect to acting its approach versus, or sorry, the behavior analysis approach of positive reinforcement in an organization. So I'm sure, well, I was at some organizations where you got to earn wow bucks and things like that. And the response within the organization from the, the folks at the, at the ground level was, this is condescending and great. I feel like a little kid and I don't feel like I'm actually a part of the organization or being trusted. And um, interestingly, the, re the research that I've read on core design principles shows that while receiving reinforcement is definitely a part of a healthy organization, it's less important than, say, these core design ideas, which includes having shared values um, and people being able to, to live and work towards their values. And, and so I guess the question I have is, is how do you get organizations that are kind of stuck on the strictly operant behavior approach to expand into the relational frame slash incorporating values into the workplace mindset? You know, I don't, I don't know that you do actually. Um, I, I just don't know that you do, you know, it's like going into the world of consulting has been a learning curve for me. And one of the things that I learned along the way was that how do I want to say this? One of the things I learned is that 
that you can kind of start to see not from too far away, but in a conversation, if you're dealing with an organizational leader who's really interested in that or not. Okay. And, and if you're not, then, um, I mean, you can poke around it a little bit. And, and what I would poke around for is what we would probably call psychological flexibility, meaning that is this person willing to consider that they have something to do with how the organization works and how people are. And, and I promise I'm answering your question, right? Um, I see it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So, so a lot of times leaders will hire a consultant because they want them to fix the problem. And the problem is the front lines or the problem is the workers or right. <laughs> and, and they don't see that, Oh, who I'm being and how I'm acting has anything to do with how people are showing up to work. Right. And I don't know that, well, I can say for certain, I haven't found a way. What I don't know is if there is a way to take someone who's unwilling to take a little bit of responsibility for how the organization's performing and get them towards that approach. Now, and I think if you've got someone who's willing to be a little bit responsible, that's the kind of person you kind of introduce this act approach with. Yeah. Right. And say like, well, are you willing to take a look at who you're being? Right. And, and who do you really want to be? And, you know, what's kind of the leader you're interested in being and, and are you being that leader? Are you willing to consider you're not being that leader? Cause one, it's kind of like going to creative hopelessness. Well, you're hiring me. Something got you talking to me, right? Are you willing to take a look at that? And, um, and so if you've got someone like that, I think it's there that then it's, you can start to introduce this values-based approach, right? Um, and now I think it's, it, it was a learning process for me to realize that maybe I don't want to spend my time trying to talk someone who's not interested in values into values or this more transformational methodology if they're only interested in really squeezing more work out of people. So in those cases, um, do you go to a Hell's Kitchen approach with like uh, Gordon Ramsay or are you more along the lines of, I guess we're parting ways? Uh, more along the lines of like, I guess we're parting ways. Okay. And, and at this point, at, at this point, I, I wouldn't take the contract. Meaning I would say, well, the, you know what? I think the, what you're looking for isn't really what we do. And perhaps I can recommend someone else to you. And, and I don't know that I'd even do that at this point. <laughs> well, because a lot of times what you'll discover is that when you're working with people who just want to get more out of their employees, mm -hmm. that, um, that somewhere, somewhere there's some lack of integrity that is going to result in what you're talking about where you try something new and people are suspicious of it. Right. Right. 
Now, something like Wild Bucks could be a really powerful tool if if it's not just the next thing that management is doing to try to get more work out of us. Like there's actual integrity right. in it instead of constantly changing the token economy. Yeah. <laughs> and going back to the core design principles, what's cool about those is that they give people a lot of say in the pro-social model gives people a lot of say in how they manage their work and how the work environment gets managed. And I think what's brilliant about that is that we forget that you know, money isn't the only reinforcer for people showing up to work, like uh, control, just control and feeling like you have a say in your environment is a big reinforcer for people. Uh, Greg Hanley's done a bunch of research where he, he shows like uh, operant, operant systems work better than non-contingent systems. And people prefer the not the operant systems. Yeah. Right. And, and pro social is kind of like that. It's uh, like a mechanism and a specific methodology for actually giving people control and say over how their, their work environment works. Well, and just thinking about the typical eight hour workday, thank you, Henry Ford, for introducing the concept. Uh, Cause before that it was like 10 to 12 hours, depending on the profession. Uh, but thinking about the, the typical eight-hour workday, yes, I'm, I'm there for eight hours, but I get maybe a 30-minute lunch, which in most places is usually unpaid. So that's eight and a half hours. And my morning is usually taken up by at least a half hour of preparation for work, perhaps a little bit more. Um, and then that doesn't even account for any commute time that we might have when some places in the world, people have to commute as much as an hour each way to go to work. So eight hours very quickly turns into the really vast majority the of the day. Yeah. yeah. And then if we don't have the right culture for where the individuals are working, then that's also very draining. Um, now, ideally, we have the ability to be at work and then be home, that sort of thing. But most people bring their work home with them. And I think that's where the psychological flexibility model um, and approach really needs to come to light when it comes to employers is these ideas of, of ACT being not just something for the organization, but for the people within the organization. Um, because I'll tell you what, there's been more than one time where I've had a hell of a day and it has been rough in many, many ways, uh, much worse than sandpaper would be rough. And without the ability to put myself into context and diffuse and be mindful and then help me bring myself back to what are my values and what are the committed actions I would take, I don't think I would be where I am now. So, yeah. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to, to talk about or, or circle back on? Any, any particular things that are of particular value you think folks should know? Not really seeing any, any questions in the comments, but uh, folks, we are actually, open to questions. Actually, there is one thing, because um, I think um, there, there's one thing I do want to, and I, I guess I mentioned it earlier, but something you said just triggered it for me, and that's... Um, that's as an organizational leader, as a manager, as a supervisor to 
really infuse your conversations with people with values and the difference it makes. Now, I know that's one thing that really a lot of a lot of ABA agencies are struggling with and that they really struggle with as they grow mm. is that when they're really small, there's a lot of it, like it's really easy to stay in touch with what matters. Mm-hmm. But then they, they get bigger and, you know, the founder moves up and isn't working with directly with clients anymore and and now but still has to have their attention on the whole business Mm -hmm. right and things like growing and finding referral sources and etc etc um and from that vantage point it's very easy to get focused on results without but just results right like are we developing referral sources have we taken on new clients are we getting our you know turned around how many billable hours are we doing etc cetera, etc cetera, without actually focusing on the on the ground difference that all of those results mean for people mm-hmm. right and um and so in a management leadership role one thing that just really works and this really works to maintain a flexible workforce is to make sure that the attention really ultimately is on those on the ground, actually, I would call uh, those the results, right? Which is that like, wow, okay, so now this child actually gets to fully participate in their classroom and be on sports teams and have friends and the family can go to the restaurant, you know, and like celebrate a holiday and that that's the difference we make right in our yeah. field um so and where the disconnect happens is that leadership has to focus on those stuff that ultimately ends in that but mm-hmm. isn't clearly communicating that that's what this is for to the people who are generating all that work and that's where one place where people start to get upset is because decisions are handed down from here to them and the conversation here becomes, well, all they care about are the numbers and, you know, and, um, and if leadership and leaders uh, can just make sure that all of this is part of the conversation, the real what's it for results are part of the conversation it'll have these people a lot more connected to that. This is an organization that is for that, uh, which alters the whole experience and it'll have people behave a lot more flexibly. So let me see if I, I have a good example for this, because this is something that was modeled for me by a mentor. And so it's something that I make sure I consistently do in, in my program creation as, as a BCBA. Um, I don't just write goals for the kid um, in the, or the client, I should say, in the a behavior support plan or behavior intervention plan. When I create a program in whatever system, Catalyst or Central Reach or ABA Desk, whatever it is, I always make sure that I transfer those goals over into the program description so that my RBTs can see the goal 
So um, that's always a part of my description is I describe what the program is supposed to look like. I give examples. I describe what, um, you know, the prompt levels would be, what does independent look like? And I always, always, always make sure that the goal is present. So that way they know that even though yeah. we're, we're working on say giving a high five, what this is doing is it's actually practicing listening, responding. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's a way, that's one way to actually, so I was given kind of a high level example, yeah. right. Where we're talking about the president, but yeah, that's something that is a BCBA, it works to have your attention on. And that's one way to actually connect, you know, the line therapist with, oh, this is for actually making a difference long-term. And this is a component skill that even though it might not make sense to me, if I'm just focused on this, given that larger goal, oh, this makes, this makes a difference. Yeah. So I, the reason I bring that up is because we got a lot of folks who, who work in the human services, whether they be teachers or BCBAs or wherever that you work. And I, I wanted to see if that fell within that because I've noticed that when I do fidelity checks and the goal is present in the description, in the description that fidelity um, towards the programming is significantly higher. Um, I don't actually have hard data on that, unfortunately. I wish I had thought to do that at the start. Um, but I, it is very noticeable that when they know what the goal is, then they can see yeah. what, that yeah. it's not just busy work, that they were doing something. It doesn't something surprise like me at all. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, someone asked, what would the number one book or resource in OBM what would I recommend for those in leadership positions working in clinical settings? Hmm. I, you know, I hate recommending books because people recommend books to me all the time and I never read them. But um, so, uh, so one, so here was a book that is, I'm still really learning this, but it's a game changer in the world of communication because so much of what you're doing in leadership really is communication. And it's called nonviolent communication um, nonviolent communication. It's by Marshall Rosenberg. He's passed away, but it's been in print for years and sold something like 2 million copies. And in, in the world of communication, it's a really, really powerful method of communication that if you use it, will have people solve their problems. And I think really as a leader, what you want is to be creating an environment where the people around you are able to problem solve. So you're not just giving them answers, but uh, you're not just giving them answers, but they're coming up with their own stuff. And, and really our science is pretty clear. There's tons of science on rule govern research that when people come up with their own rules, they're more likely to follow them. Right. Um, so that's a really great book. I honestly think that I don't think OBM is that complicated. It, it really is a lot of um, applying really what you know about behavior to what you want to see from performance and reinforcing people or reinforcing their behavior when you're seeing things desirable. Um, and then, and that's why I recommend the um, nonviolent communication book 
is because when people aren't performing, you don't want to just punish them or extinguish them or whatever. Uh, really what you want to do is have them look around to see, Oh, what could I do differently? Um, and, and that's a really good book for, for developing that skill. It, it has a lot of good practices for developing that skill, I think. Okay. So I hope that's helpful. Well, and uh, the individual who asked that question followed up with, do you have any we website recommendations? Um, do I have any website recommendations? I would really actually go, I, I would say definitely, well, yeah, I have some, check out my website at sixflextraining.com. And um, I'm going to take a moment to plug my course, which is Supervising Dynamically. And, and in that course, we apply ACT to, well, it's actually very, very self-centered in the sense that the premise is that if you're going to coach people to be flexible, you got to be flexible. And that starts with looking at where am I being inflexible, right? So a lot of it is doing that work. And then really having done that work from there, coaching people, developing people, having the hard conversations. Um, so there's a little self-promotion. That's fine. That's, uh, well, this is an open source uh, uh, resource or podcast. So we want you to plug your stuff so that way folks can find you. So you said six as an SIX. SIX. I'll put it in the chat. And uh, flex training.com. Training yeah. Awesome. But also I really do. Um, I will really recommend again, checking out kevinpoke.com. I'm going to put that in the chat too. Um, uh, and, and starting to learn the matrix because it really is scalable. Like I said, I use it with organizational teams. I actually use it as I have a framework for having conversations for leadership that uses, uses the matrix. And, and if you can touch on all dimensions of it in a conversation, it just really works. Uh, so it's, so I go there and he's got a ton of free resources. He does podcasts all the time and um, awesome. some free webinars. So check him out. Definitely will. Well, uh, folks, are there any other questions that you all might have for the live stream? Or Scott, is there anything else that you want to touch on? No, just, uh, you know, thanks to everyone who showed up. Thanks to everyone who's listening. Thanks for the difference you make. Um, I know that you probably don't get thanked enough for it. And, and the work that you do isn't easy. So thanks for being someone who's doing that work. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on here and discuss. And uh, folks, if you want to learn more about Scott Hurst and his work, uh, check out SIX6flextraining.com. Uh, we'll be sure to link that in the podcast description as well, as well as uh, link all the other resources that were talked about here. Um, Scott, uh, thank you again for coming. Uh, remember, folks. Oh, and thank really you so pleasure. much for having me. 
It's a real pleasure. Uh, folks, remember that uh, Act Natural Podcast is an open source education material, which means that you can utilize a whole or part towards uh, continuing education and educational purposes. Uh, please keep in mind that you need to cite your sources, though. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we hope you have an excellent day and uh, act natural. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks.